If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. Like no cell service in your room, off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths. Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. Here's an HIV pill dilemma for you. Picture the scene. There's a rooftop sunset with fairy lights and you're vibing with friends. You remember you've got to take your HIV pill. Important, yes, but the fun moment is gone. Did you know there's a long-acting treatment option available? So catch the sunset and keep the party going. Visit PillFreeHIV.com today to learn more. Brought to you by Vive Healthcare. Hello, ladies. Greetings from Texas, where I'm boot scooting and boogieing, hooting and hollering. Hooting and hollering. I was scared. I thought you were going to be like, hello, ladies. And Saeed, what in tar nation? I was a little nervous. I'm Sam Sanders. I'm Saeed Jones. And I'm Zach Stafford. And you are listening to Vibe Check. This week, I am in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest, busy with stuff down here, but joining my sisters for our weekly Kiki, and we have so much to talk about this week. Mm -hmm. A lot is happening. A little bank called Silicon Valley Bank collapsed last week, and then Joe Byron said, let me help y'all out, and he did. We're going to (laughs) talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. Also, we're going to get into a thing you might have been noticing the last few weeks has become a trend. Politicians being outed, or not quite outed, just kind of put on blast for sexual things. We're going to talk about that and talk about whether it's ever appropriate to out a politician. And I would say they're telling on themselves. I was about to say it's almost like maybe it's like because of social media. (laughs) Social media has got these girls in a chokehold because they cannot Mm -hmm. not like the girls. Some of this stuff, they aren't even being outed. It's just like there. It is there. (laughs) We'll get into it. But first, let's all check in. How are my sisters doing? Saeed, how are you? Well, you know, you're at South by Southwest right now. I stand in exhausted solidarity. Yo, Um, conferences are tiring. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. been a while since I've been there, but I've done South by Southwest twice in the past. I just got back from a huge writing conference, AWP. It was in Seattle this year. And it's an annual conference that I went to. I, I hadn't been to since 2016, so it's not just the pandemic. It's been a few years, but before that... Um, I'd attended this conference every year, um, Mm. basically, since I was a junior in college. It's how I found my graduate program. Um, Mm. It's how I met friends like Isaac Fitzgerald. We became Twitter pen pals after we met at at a conference. And that was, what, 2011? Roxane Gay is someone else. So I have a... It's not just like, okay, let me just show up. It's like I've kind of grown up as a writer with this conference, but... Showing up at these big spaces with all of these people for the first time... Oh, man, it was intense. And just one example, this conference has like a huge book fair where there's like Mm -hmm. publishers and indie presses and and writing programs and all that kind of stuff. And I used to love it because, you know, the the serendipity of Mm -hmm. running into people is a a huge part of why you show up, right? But Mm -hmm. baby, I had to set a timer on my phone every time I went into this space. About 25 minutes was all I can handle. And I just have to... 
I think it's just that thing where we're, we have to acknowledge some of our patterns, yeah. some of our tolerances for spaces is changing. Yeah. Well, and also the last three years, I've been working from home, and on mm-hmm. many days during the work week, I only see my dogs and my boyfriend. Yeah. Right. That's it. And so yeah. to go into an environment where you're not just on all day for the conference, but mm-hmm. seeing friends you haven't seen in years in passing right. and being like, let's hang out, it's uh-huh. hard. Yeah. yeah. Zach, how are you doing? I mean, I'm I'm good. I, I'm rested. I'm not oh, anywhere. Must be nice. I'm at home, and I'm okay. typically oh. this is my you're first, never at home. I'm never you're home. never at home. I'm about to leave again, but I'm never at home. And um, <laughs> I'm usually at South by Southwest. This is my first time in you know five years. I haven't been there besides the mm-hmm. pandemic years that are shut down. And and I remember last year when I went it was my first big like public event, um, mm-hmm. and I got to be on the one of the like, main stage with the birds aren't real people. And oh yeah, it was so overwhelming because like you're running into people and you're like, how do I know you? Twitter, if we met before, what's going on? And I kept having to hide in my Airbnb to like get myself back together. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just so, so hard. So I definitely uh, say, um, I can tell that you are tired because you've been working. Like you've been doing a lot of events which I'll talk about. But uh, I've been chilling. I was at a tennis tournament this weekend, which was wonderful. Not pickleball? Not not pickleball? pickleball. (laughs) Not pickleball, girl. It was at Indian Wells where the pickleball national championship does happen. Um, But I was at the tennis tournament, the, uh, the Indian Wells Open. And it's been really fun this week because of our conversation, Sam. I have found out we have so many listeners that love tennis and hate pickleball. I feel it's, so aligned. Um, the emails have been <laughs> I haven't checked and the, the tweets quite <laughs> impassioned. A lot of tweets. And there were some <laughs> listeners. So, at I don't know Indian if at the time Wells. I fully understood how serious yeah, this tennis versus pickleball thing is. Also, what do these <laughs> listeners expect from me? I've already admitted to owning an OtterBox as an iPhone case. I am geriatric. <laughs> an elder. An elder let, me, yes. let me be. Yeah. Let yeah. me be. But um, I will say, and I know we're going to talk about this much later, but Saeed did come out as an anti-tar stand, which happened while I was at a tennis tournament with Yo. no cell phone service. So my phone Yo. was like, Beeping and then disappearing and beeping. And I was like, did Saeed cancel me? Is my life over? What's happening on the other side? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but it was a love, mixture of tennis love, love and tar chaos, which we're going to talk about later. <laughs> my, my, my. Yeah, yeah, that's right. People listening, we're going to get into tar. I we're have I it. have extensive notes. It's pages. Um, pages. It, you know, so it would be a spoiler heavy thing, but we're, okay. we're going to do that at the end. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, Sam, how are you doing before we jump into it? I'm good. I'm, I'm tired from this yeah. conference, but I'm having a great time. And I'm feeling really optimistic about the state of TV and movies this year out of what I'm seeing at South By. So mm. I moderated two panels, one for the premiere of Swarm, Donald Glover and Janine Neighbors new show on Amazon Prime Video, all about a kind of Beyonce superstand who starts killing. Uh, it's really great. The crowd loved it. It's going to be big and buzzy. Apparently, Beyonce's watched it. And then yesterday, I interviewed Julio Torres about his really, really, really great new film called Problemista, which is an immigration comedy that he directed starring him and Tilda Swinton. What a pairing. Right? It was a really good movie. I was at a party for Meg Stalter's new movie, which our friend <laughs> Luke Rogers helped produce. Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling like we're going to get some good TV and movies out in the streets this year. I love and I'm it. optimistic. I think I closed last year you're being overwhelmed and exhausted by having too much shit to watch. Mm-hmm. But I'm ready to be more discerning this year and I think there's going to be good things to consume. So South By, even though it's exhausting me, 
has me optimistic. So that's my vibe this week. It's going to be a good year for TV and movies. I believe. I love it. That's cool. I agree. I, and I, I think yeah. everything, everywhere, all at once, which, you know, shout out to all of that. Y'all oh, yeah. know. Y'all oh, yeah. know. It's oh, yeah. Wednesday. We get it. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it initially premiered at South by Southwest. So, mm. you know, yeah. so it's, it's kind yeah. of cool to yeah. think like, oh, wow, you might be seeing some movies the and next TV big shows thing. that next year yeah. we're all like, oh, my goodness. Well. And what's so crazy about South By, when I first started coming to South By, I think I first came for NPR in like 2010, it was a music festival primarily. Mm-hmm. Now it's a film and TV festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People don't a lot of music journalist much. teams are not even sending their music critics to South By anymore. Mm-hmm. It is a film festival and a TV festival, which I find quite interesting. And it's because, you know, Sundance, the Berlin Film Festival, always mm-hmm. happened right before it. And then you yeah. have, you know, Cannes coming up, you have Tribeca coming up, you have Toronto coming up. It just, South By is so like busy that they got to like, really amp up the filming and the music. They were like, okay, yeah, whatever. Exactly. And also <laughs> exactly. it's interesting, and I, I wonder, Sam, if you agree, but having grown up in Texas, you're right. When we were young people in the state, I, I felt like Austin was defined by its independent music scene. It had exactly. a great independent, and also Denton, Texas, actually. Um, yeah. But I feel like particularly in the last 10, 15 years, as you explained, Austin it started to feel like Los Angeles, not mm-hmm. just because of South by, but literally like industry changes in the city. So oh, yeah. maybe that's all. There's a lot of tech together. folks down there now. Mm-hmm. There's a strip of South Congress near downtown Austin that feels like you're in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Soho house in Austin now. There it's is. like it's a scene. <laughs> it's become a scene. Uh, and that Soho house, for fun fact for those in Texas, is not private. Part of it is public, so you can go to it if you don't. Oh, I can go in there. Yeah, you can go in there. Certain parts. I'm going you can. today. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, before we get into the episode, we want to thank all of you who sent us fan mail. Even those of you who called me out over pickleball, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I'll give you my personal email address. Send me a line. This is why I love Sam Sanders. He stands in his truth. I double down. He does not care. Listen, yes, it's called conviction. Uh, Thank you all for reaching out on social media and via email. We want to keep hearing from you. Keep the emails coming. Vibecheck at Stitcher.com. Vibecheck at Stitcher.com. All right, now let's jump in, shall we? Let's go. Zach is going to explain our latest financial crisis. Go ahead, Mr. Yellen. Do it. I mean, I am Janet Yellen. (laughs) Zach Yellen. Listen to me. Um, But yeah, I'm going to, you know, I've never been a financial reporter. This has been a fun exercise these past few days of having to understand what's happening. Now having to tell the tale today, which, you know, I'm excited about. I also, in full disclosure, I recently have, you know, after my life at Grindr as an executive, I sit on some advisory committees for VCs to help queer people get money. So like, I personally was like really pulled into this in a really weird way, which- It's giving Kara Swish her. (laughs) Quit Swish her. (laughs) (laughs) Not the pivot. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Dying. All right. The well, bank. Let's, the bank. Let's get to the, the bank. bank. Let's get to yes. the bank. Okay. So this is a bit complicated. We're going to try to use our own personal stories, lives to weave into this, to make it make sense. And I hope at the end of this, you walk away being able to tell your friends what happened. Because the one mm-hmm. thing about finance is that it's about power and they like to gatekeep the language around it. And we're going to try to distill all of it today. Yeah. So to get us going, the bank in question is called Silicon Valley Bank. If you'd never heard of it before, There's a reason for that, and you are not alone. That bank primarily only worked with the hyper-wealthy, all of tech, all of that. So if you're not in that space, 
there was a reason why you didn't hear about it. Yeah. And it's crazy that we didn't know about it because it's the 16th large, or it was the 16th yeah. largest bank in the country. Uh-huh. It just wasn't fucking with folks like us. It, wasn't, <laughs> it just felt like a perfect example of that that saying like, real money, real wealth moves in silence. Yeah, like, you go. It was so silent. I'd I never didn't heard know of it. it was here until it was gone. <laughs> exactly. And then it was, it was gone. And now we're going to yeah. figure out how much it was here when it ripples through yeah. our economy. So yeah. a big reason why this is such a big deal outside of other banks failing or other financial institutions failing is because there's this thing called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So what's really cool about that is that if you have a banking account in this United States of America and you have less than $250,000 in it, which is most people in this country, yes, right. you are protected. You never got to worry about it. It's insured. If your bank fails, the feds will come in and give you that money back. Girl, you're okay. Yes. But when you cross that threshold, that's where things get a little dangerous and you got to think about things differently. This bank specifically, while it's the 16th largest bank in America or was, it's one of the wealthiest banks ever in terms of customer to wealth ratio because hmm. most of these accounts there had way over $250,000 and they were not insured. Yeah, it was a lot of VC people, a lot of startup people, and they're usually having 10, 20, 30 million in the bank, if not more. Exactly. And so the reason that this got out of hand is because these folks didn't have their money insured. So when there were fears about the status of this bank, all they really thought to do was take the money out because they knew it wasn't insured. And that caused a run. And these VCs, because they love Silicon Valley Bank, this bank helped get them their first financing, was there for them the whole way. They kept all their money there, which most organizations would never, ever, ever do. And that's why when everything started falling apart, things really got rocky. Well, and what was crazy is some of the deals that Silicon Valley Bank had with startup folks and VC folks said that if we give you this much money or loan you this much money or you have to invest everything with us. So they really were telling these folks, it's just us. You're just hanging with us. And let me interject here as the girl who has not worked in a California VC or gone to Harvard. Look, (laughs) I learned a lot about economics from- uh, This finger, this finger. From The Wire. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm just saying, for those of us who are like, wait, bitch, I'm a little confused. I mean, I feel like a pretty basic thing that straight up, like, those of us who are like, really don't understand, like, investment and stuff, we do understand the basic idea of, like, you're supposed to diversify investments. Whatever little money you have, generally, we understand that what you want to do is not have it all in one place because something can go wrong and then you're totally vulnerable. It was so bad and these startup bros were so undiverse that there were many last week when they were trying to pull their money out of Silicon Valley Bank had nowhere to put it. Mm. And so some companies were putting the money in CEOs' personal bank accounts because there was nowhere else to put this yep. money. Um, I burst out laughing last night when I realized that BuzzFeed um, mm-hmm. had a lot of its money most of its in money. Silicon Valley. <laughs> most of us, and I was like, of course it does. Of yes. course they would do this. Yes. But also it's striking because I just, I don't know, when I think about, bank, I, I, I don't really think too often about like, where do companies store their money? Generally, I'm thinking of individuals, consumers, yeah. but this has been interesting because yeah. of the kind of like corporate aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you how bad it got over at Vox? They fixed it, but for a day last week, Vox is company cards wouldn't work. Yep. Because they're oh, tied up wow. in Silicon Valley Bank. They had Silicon Valley Bank credit cards, which yeah. were not working. Dang. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. We should now talk about why the run happened and what caused that. Yes. So let's get to that. And I think some historical context will make you understand why these guys who are in their 30s and 40s freaked out so much. So yes. for those of you that are you know above the age of 30, you very vividly probably remember the 2008 crisis, the recession that hit. That yes. happened in September 15th, 2008, when the Lehman Brothers Bank on Wall Street 
failed. And the difference between this failure and the Silicon Valley Bank failure is that that one was about mortgages and housing, and the housing market was really bloated, and it burst, and everything just fell apart. So it's very different than this. And this one's about tech companies not being very diverse. But before we get into that, Everyone here, where were you when that happened? Because I still have PTSD about that day. You know, I was entering my first year of graduate school at the Kennedy School, and I remember my econ and stats professors freaking out, saying, I can't lecture the syllabus today. we got to talk about this. And these like really, really smart economics professors were like, I've never seen anything like this in my life, and I'm very scared. And mm-hmm. that scared me. And what was crazy about 2008, you know, all of this shit was connected. Lehman Brothers was tied to the housing market. Everyone's tied to the housing market. And when that collapsed, the entire economy collapsed. And what's different about this one right now is Silicon Valley Bank is big, but they don't have their hands in as much nope. other stuff as these banks in 08 did. So yeah, we might be protected. Goodness. Also, Joe Biden and uh, what's her name stepped Janet. in right away and said, we're fixing this. So that helped a lot as well. But you do get some PTSD when you start thinking about what happened with Silicon Valley Bank last week compared to 08. Yeah. yeah, my memories of 2008, it's interesting because two things that always stand out when I think about it is one, I have vivid memories of my mom in, let's say, 2004 to 2008. She was really trying to get a home loan. She really mm. wanted a little home for us. I mean, it really probably would have been like a one bedroom because I was in college at that point and she could not get a loan. She couldn't mm. qualify for it. And it was so painful. And and embarrassing. And I remember, mm-hmm. like, sometimes she would feel comfortable telling me she had been rejected again. And then sometimes it would just, like, she wouldn't even mention it and I wouldn't. And, you know, like, that's that's really frustrating. But it also meant she did not get one of those loans that blew up people's lives, yeah. you know. And so it was actually kind of interesting to see how straight-up anti-Black discrimination, redlining, in a way— in a way, mm-hmm. protected my mother. And then yeah. also, September 2008, uh, I'm starting my first semester of graduate school at Rutgers University, Newark, where I study creative writing. And I was fortunate enough. Um, I mean, I guess it was also my work, my talent, whatever. But I, I got a you know fully funded teaching fellowship. So I had a salary. Mm-hmm. I had health insurance. I was taken mm-hmm. care of. And funding in that program was locked in. Some programs like uh, the University of Iowa, for example, it's notorious for being very competitive. And so your funding is not stable. You know, it's kind of like you're competing against your classmates. And so I remember weirdly feeling like, wow, my mother did not run into like all of this huge misfortune. And -hmm. then I also, for those two years of, you know, those initial two years of the recession, I was kind of protected in a way that I absolutely would not have been otherwise. You know, if I were graduating from grad school Mm -hmm. right then, woof. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, you know, I was in college. I just started and all, I was in a philosophy class and the seniors were spiraling because I, sure. I just started. And they were philosophy like, majors, job it's hard to get a job anyway. Listen, I was just taking yeah. a class for fun. I wanted to learn about some Foucault, honey. And, and there you they go. wanted to be philosophers. <laughs> yeah. And it, they were just freaking out. You know, yeah. and personally, you know, I, I don't know if I've talked about this in public before, but um, my father was indicted around this time for his crimes related to the mortgage crisis. Oh so my, my dad goodness. was part of a really high profile crackdown 
that happened with a lot of these mortgage groups that were predatory. And my father was one of them. And he's now out of prison, but was incarcerated for it. So I was personally dealing with it from a family standpoint, but also economically dealing with it as a college student, taking out loans. I had to take out loans because my dad lost everything. Yeah. Did commit a crime. So he lost everything. Yeah. And, you know, I'm in this. So I also was like, oh my God, everything's over. It's falling apart. It's wild. And we, we all survived it. And the reason why we've all survived it is because the government under Obama jumped in and began repairing the economy and building regulations around these And banks. this is what's crazy. When you talk about the Silicon Valley Bank failure, you've already seen politicians like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders say the reason this collapse happened is because Donald Trump rolled back one of those right. post-recession regulations in 2018, yeah. and it directly caused this. It yes. made it easier for banks like Silicon Valley Bank to do whatever they wanted to do and not yes. get checked. Yes. And we should explain quickly how a thing like a bank run happens. So 101, when you put your money in a bank, they invest it in other stuff to make more profit. So the bank is holding your money, but also reinvesting your money so that they can make a profit. And for a while, Silicon Valley Bank had a bunch of money flowing into their coffers because VC was throwing money at startup founders who put it in Silicon Valley Bank. And they invested a bunch of this in government treasury bonds. And usually... Government treasury bonds are really, really safe because the government is not going to fail, right? But as the economy began to turn this last year or so, a lot of these startup heads needed to take more money out of Silicon Valley Bank. So there was less money in their bank anyway. And the return on those government bonds began to decrease because as the interest rate went up in America, the yields back on those bonds that they had bought a long time ago with lower rates became less. So they basically needed more money. And this happens to banks all the time. But Silicon Valley Bank basically was going to sell some stuff to buy some other stuff and get some more cash, right? This happens all the time, but it's different when you have a consumer base like Silicon Valley Bank customers. These are titans of tech who are online all the time. Online and all in touch with Mm -hmm. each other. Yes, and it's easy Mm -hmm. for them to get scared. So... If my bank were going through some shit and had to sell some stuff to make some more money, I probably wouldn't even read the email if they told me. But I also wouldn't be calling up every other Bank of America customer I know saying, girl, are you worried? But with Silicon Valley Bank, as soon as one of those Silicon Valley bros found out what was going on, they called everybody else. Then you had venture capital folks telling startup founders to pull their money out. And this was a run on the banks basically caused by bro Twitter and Slack. Yep. And I was talking to Kara Swisher about this, and she said, yeah, if these guys weren't so heavily online, this crash may not have happened. These girls are pack animals who got scared. That's what it is. And that's why Biden and Yellen had to respond so quickly, because you have people like Elon Musk, who's very online, speaking about how they are billionaires, Peter Mm -hmm. Thiel, moving billions of dollars out of banks into their own coffers. That disrupts the entire economy. That disrupts the entire culture around money. And it would make people like you and I, who may be at Bank of America, JP yeah. Morgan Chase, want to pull our money out. And if that began to happen, It'd everything would tragic. fall apart. Yeah. And that would be a problem. So, yeah. so my thing is, this is really interesting, but I guess to a certain extent, I only care about this in terms of how it might impact the rest of us. Yes. And so- The two questions I have are, will this impact the rest of us, right? Will what happened to the bank and what the Biden administration and Janet Yellen do, for better or worse, 
you know, be a domino effect? Should the rest of us be worried? Is this like the beginning of something seismic like 2008? Mm -hmm. And then the second question, to also take it back to 2008, is this a bailout? Like, Mm -hmm. would you consider this a bailout? Because, of course, for the three of us and for, I think, the people that we think about and care about the most, it's pretty striking to see things like SNAP food benefits being taken away from families right now. Or, you know, the Supreme Court is clearly about to intervene and make sure that student debt relief doesn't actually become a reality. And so, like, seeing, like, you know, I... I, like we know this bank is complicated. It's not just billionaires. We know some, one of our listeners is a doctor based in Boston and the bank that his practice has used for years was acquired by yeah, SVP. Exactly. You know, he's not some tech bro. So I'm not just going to write yeah. them all off. But I was like, what does this mean for the rest of us? It's it's less of a bailout than what happened in 08. In 08, a lot of these banks were made whole, paid out, and the leaders of these banks never had to face any punishment. Joe Biden has already said the leaders of Silicon Valley Bank, they're not going to get paid out for their investments in the bank. You know, folks who had money in the bank will get it back. But if you were like some executive as an investor in that bank, you're not getting your money back. They're also not yet free from any legal ramifications. So Joe Biden has already said that. But I do think he had to do it to prevent this situation because a bank like Silicon Valley Bank is never just tech bros. All those companies have real people who work for them. They got janitors and secretaries and all the like. And this bank was actually kind of diversified. They were putting billions into work with nonprofits and folks that were helping with housing and other issues. So it wasn't just the bros. Yeah. But I think from what we've seen now, Joe Biden and Yellen stepping in so quickly to just stop the bleeding, I think it might work. I think we'll know by the end of the week if there's like a further bigger effect, but I think it might be okay. And I would say we're going to be okay in what this does set a precedent for, which is really good for a lot of people, is that the FDIC will step in if you have balances over 250. So if, let's say, you just took out a loan for a house and the cash is sitting in your bank account and you have half a million dollars for your house and your bank was the fail, you'd be protected. So there's an interesting way in which, like, hopefully this is precedent setting to where when there mm-hmm. are extreme situations, the U.S. government will help. What I hope this also sets a precedent around is we should be helping everyone in extreme situations. The person that doesn't have Medicaid, that can't get treatment for cancer, should have yes. access to health care. These students do not need to be paying back these debts exactly. for paying these creditors back. So I think it should help us and Sanders, Senator Sanders and Warren, I know them and they're going to use this as a calling card in 2024 to push us to have a more radically yes. helpful government when it comes to money. Yeah. I sure and also, so. what this is a reminder of, I tell folks this all the time, money is made up. Money is imaginary. It's a social contract, like gender. (laughs) The government can make money when they want to make it, and they can move money when they want to move it at the drop of a hat. So don't ever let the government tell you they don't have enough money for health care or for student loan relief Mm -hmm. or for things like that because they just found hundreds of billions of dollars in a day to save Silicon Valley Bank. The money is out there. They, They create money. Yeah. We do yeah. not Anywho. live in a scarce country. I really there is hope no scarce moving city. forward yeah. from this, and, and in particular thinking of Senators Warren and Sanders, I hope that the next time they call these tech CEOs in particular to the Hill, um, who are always yelling for de- deregulation, mm-hmm. always understandably you know, dragging federal government for being too slow to act, and it's like, uh-uh, we showed up when you needed us. Remember yeah. that? Remember oh, yeah. what we did? And so oh, yeah. it's going to come. I want some strings to be attached. I guess that's oh, what I'm yeah. going to say. Yeah. I want some regulations and some strings to be attached. I want the bank fees, for example, that they're using to kind of fund this bailout, not bailout. I want some mm-hmm. of those bank fees, for example, to be taken out because they disproportionately impact poor and working class yeah. people. 
Yeah, yeah. I yeah. agree. Well, we will be watching this story, which is very, very fast moving. And I want to say bravo to all of us for really breaking down something that was super, Look super complicated. Look at that. We, Look I would at say us. Government this, bonds, baby. Government <laughs> bonds. Hey, listen, <laughs> banks, infrastructure, we got and you. And I would just so like to thank the wires, Stringer Bell. Uh, for for everything he taught me about Listen. street economics. Oh also, God. also have more than one motherfucking bank account. Anywho, Hello, bye. if you can, if you can, if you can, if you can, if you can. If you can. If you can. All, right. All right. Well, we need to take a quick break, but stay tuned. We'll be right back to talk about these messy, messy politicians Shout and their out. Twitter, Instagram fingers that are going crazy. <laughs> hey, listeners, Sam Sanders here. If you know my face, you know I shave it a lot. I shave the head because I'm bald. I shave the cheeks because I got a mustache right now. And one thing that helps me keep this beautiful brown skin nice and smooth are Bevel shaving products. Bevel, B-E-V-E-L. It's a wonderful black-owned business. And if you are looking to discover your own black-owned and founded brand to become obsessed with, shop Ulta Beauty. Ulta Beauty is celebrating black-owned and founded brands this month and every month. Ulta Beauty has you covered with all your beauty needs, from skin and body care to hair care, makeup, and much, much more. You can shop black-owned and founded brands like Butterskin, Black Girl Sunscreen, Pound Cake, Pat McGrath Labs, Donna's Recipe, Urban Hydration, and so many more soon-to-be favorites. Discover the powerful ingredients the efficacy, and the artistry of these black-owned and founded brands. Ulta Beauty sees and celebrates people creating joy for themselves and others through beauty, embracing their individuality through makeup, and taking pride in every pattern. Discover the joy of black beauty with Ulta Beauty. Head to your local Ulta Beauty store or Ulta.com right now to shop your fave black-owned and founded brands. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. There are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. And for me, I have used Factor for years, from when I was hosting morning television to traveling all the time now as a producer. I love knowing that food is getting delivered to my door that is fresh and ready to go so that I can always be ready to go as well. So head to factormeals.com slash vibecheck50 and use code vibecheck50 to get 50% off. That's code vibecheck50 at factormeals.com slash vibecheck50 to get 50% off. All right, my queens, we are back and we're going to switch gears to the politics of outing. You know, it's let's, simple. Let's just Love keep it. it simple because nothing else about this is simple. Let's start here. Tennessee Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally announced Monday that he is 
pausing all social media activity after revelations that he repeatedly commented on the Instagram post of a 20-year-old Southern twink by the name of Franklin McClure. According to McClure's interview with The Cut magazine that I recommend reading, it's it's actually a really interesting conversation between Franklin and a writer who's also, I believe, from Tennessee in the South, where Franklin lived for a long time. And it's, you know, it's kind of interesting dialogue. But uh, McClure said that the 79-year-old McNally has been in touch with him, not just via those comments, but apparently via private messages on Instagram for at least three years. Wow. McClure told The Cut that the politician has been commenting on his page for almost three years in addition to sending him private messages, quote, checking on my mental health, compliments, and random things about his life and what he's going through. Okay. Um, Hmm. Apparently this, and also this 20-year-old was not the only LGBT identified person that Randy McNally was commenting on their page. Was he sending them money or just saying hi? We know nothing about money. We know nothing about in-person contact. It seems like it was mostly messages, comments, a lot of rainbow emojis. Um, (laughs) The general consensus is that this politician's social media activity is newsworthy because, of course, this is the lieutenant governor of the state of Tennessee, which in particular has introduced 26 anti-LGBT bills so far this year. Y'all, it is mid-March. That is mm-hmm. a lot of anti-LGBT public policy for one state so early in the year, and it's the most in the country, according to the Human Rights Campaign. So I want to make this clear. It's not just any politician in any state, whatever, and it's like, oh, this is an awkward social media situation. There's a direct relationship between the politics that the politician is supporting and perhaps how this person is living. McNally, this politician, has supported the anti-drag bill that we discussed in a previous episode of Vibe Check. He opposes marriage equality and voted to limit sports participation on the basis of sex assigned at birth. Which is to say, this is a contemporary example of political outing. Um, It has a long, complicated history, but here's, here's just a very fast gist. For most of recent history, outing was something that was done to abuse, terrorize, ruin the lives of queer people. And you'll remember that until fairly recent in the United States, it was illegal to be LGBT. So being outed could literally not just get you fired, you could end up in jail um, Mm -hmm. well, well into the 20th century. HIV AIDS in the 80s changed all of that, both because of the way the disease works, people were being exposed unintentionally, inadvertently, but also a lot of activists felt that there was an onus on coming out and being open about HIV AIDS to save people's lives, to try to talk to people about what was going on amidst this really unprecedented pandemic. Um, which means that by the 1990s, queer activists began using outing to expose and push back against politicians who, like McNally, publicly supported policies that were anti-LGBTQ. And there are so many examples (laughs) we could list, um, but I just wanted to give two. Assistant Secretary of the Department of Defense, Pete Williams, publicly supported the exclusion of gay people from military service. That's Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Well, he was outed by activists in 1991. And then in 1996, Senator Barbara Mikulski, she was a Democrat representing the state of Maryland, was outed by activists disgruntled by her support of the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act. So that is how outing really functioned, I would argue, in the 90s. 
up until marriage equality was passed. I think in the last few years, things have changed, and I want to talk to Sam and Zach about why that might be the case. I think what we're seeing with McNally is a significant example of what we see now, where people are being outed almost by themselves, right? Yeah, like, I don't like think we call it outing. It's not quite outing. And, and also, I want to make it clear, this lieutenant governor, I'm not saying he's gay or bisexual. I am saying that he's been identified consistently liking and interacting with queer people that he's also trying to oppress. I think there are a few things going on here. One, what the fuck is happening in Tennessee? Besides (laughs) this guy all up in the Southern Twinks DMs, the governor of Tennessee who just signed a bill policing drag, there's a photo of him in drag from back in the day. Yeah, that's Governor Bill Lee and also the politician who introduced the bill, both of them. Yeah, so I think, one, Tennessee is on some weird shit right now, but two— None of these are classic outings. That governor, he stood for that photo himself. And this guy McClure was making the comments himself in public. These are mm-hmm. public comments that anybody could find on Instagram. So I am a lot less conflicted about mm-hmm. this kind of situation because no one was like following them. No mm-hmm. one sent a private investigator to their house following their car to see what they were doing. This was all out in broad daylight. So I think we have to classify it a little bit differently than outing. Outing's a good shorthand for it, but it's not mm-hmm. quite outing. I would, yeah, I would say you're right, but I would also, you know, argue because I'm from this area of the world. I'm friendly with some of the reporters working in this case. They saw the comments and they investigated it, and they're going deeper into his yeah. life. So they're now yeah. going. They're trying to substantiate these claims by talking to his family, his loved mm-hmm. ones, trying to find a partner. All these things. This same thing happens with you know Senator Lindsey Graham has faced allegations for many years. He's always mm. denied them in really interesting ways. But it's something that people in DC talk a lot about. People on Fox News even talk a lot about. And um, didn't that, if, if memory serves, didn't a sex worker? Kind of came forward, but then they were silenced. Yeah, it came forward, and then all the tweets were deleted. So we've had people come oh, forward okay. and then take it back. Mm-hmm. But there is this this kind of glass closet we've seen emerge mm-hmm. in the post-AIDS kind of politics of where these politicians, like an Aaron Shock, will you know be a congressperson from Illinois, decorate his congressional office like a Downton Abbey, live mm-hmm. a very openly gay life in the bars, go out, but then deny it to the face of the public. And it's kind of like, what do we do now? Is the question I think you're asking, Side? Right. It's like, should yeah. we return to these politics of saying, you know, but no, you don't get to live in this glass closet. Like we get to kind of release the hounds into your life and really drag you out, which I'm kind of of the the mind of, yeah. Like if McNally is having lovers, bring them forward. Yeah, and that's something I, I just directly wanted to ask you. As you both know, I was an LGBT editor at BuzzFeed News for years. And my stance then and now is that if someone, a reporter or an activist came to me with ample evidence that either someone was queer in the sense that's like, oh, they're in relationships. I can show, you know, like we have some kind of way of proving this. Or in the case of McNally, which is a little different, they're engaging content, right? That doesn't mean you're, that doesn't mean, you know, that's an identity, but the way they're interacting is opposing their politics and their politics are causing active harm. If we can substantiate those claims, report on it. That's where I am. How would you handle it in this situation though, Sam? I would be a little resistant to report on a politician's sexuality unless I were covering politics. Right now, I cover pop culture. So it's yeah, like, so you wouldn't like break that? news on into no. it. But if I were still covering politics, mm-hmm. I would take this to my editor and let them make the call. But I would for mm-hmm. sure take it to them. Mm-hmm. But I also think that like this conversation about to out or not to out, it kind of misdirects responsibility. It mm-hmm. feels very similar to me to the conversation we have around 
individuals watching their carbon footprint instead of making big corporations fix climate change. Oh, interesting. There are big players that could actually make change in Tennessee right away. There are corporations that rely on queer imagery and content to survive that could say, we're going to pull business out of this state. We're not going to work with these politicians. We're going to not give to these politicians. And instead of the onus being on them, Instead of people picketing outside of Viacom or whoever else, right? Instead of that, we are asking independent journalists to out politicians on their own, right? I think that in all of this conversation about what Tennessee is doing to queer people and to drag queens, we are not talking enough about what corporate interests can do to help solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And I don't want us to be too small-minded mm -hmm. in how to fix these things. I would love a corporate boycott of Tennessee. And I think that would do more than than like outing. I, I guess you. I would push back because isn't it a yes and? And, and, yeah. and I know that this isn't like LG, but like, well, I guess it is a queer issue as well, but reproductive health, right? Like the state of California, what they're doing with Walgreens right now. I mean, yeah. to me, it just yeah. seems like surely it's possible. Let, let's diversify yeah. our queer portfolio, right? To use that but phrase. But that said, has, has outing ever changed what the GOP wants to do to gay people? I it mean, I would argue in, in yeah. those two examples. And then uh, that, and so, yeah, and maybe this is an, a question. Maybe it's changing. I would say in the 90s, um, we can look at Mark Foley, mm -hmm. Aaron Schock, Pete Williams, Barbara Mikulski. I mean, these are all people who lost power, who were no yeah. longer able to stay in but office. But it didn't make the GOP pro-gay. No, but I don't think I don't think any I, I don't, I don't think, think any one yeah. thing's going to make some I don't so I think I think it's like part of it is an issue of scale. Yeah. Um imagine right now look at the US Senate or the House like look at how important George Santos who by the you could almost say is kind of being outed Look how fragile, for example, Republican control of the House is. If, you know, three to four politicians on the Republican side were exposed and like, you know, there could, I don't yeah. know. I, I, and yeah. I would just, just something, I, something I'm trying to say is um, we have to also think about the context of Tennessee as someone that lived in Tennessee is that yeah. Tennessee very recently under Bill Lee became an entirely red state. Nashville mm. is no longer blue. They have redlined the entire state. They have gerrymandered all the blue out of it. They're really desperate. My friends call me weekly, very upset. People are literally leaving the state because it's become so mm -hmm. dire. My own mother left the state because it's becoming so dire. And I think we are at a point where you do need to hit these people where it hurts. If Lieutenant Governor McNally is queer and having a queer life privately and is also introducing legislation that is really destroying families right now, we should be calling that out while also asking these corporations to do yeah. something real. And the reason why they're not doing anything is because they have no political power anymore due to the gerrymandering in yes. the state of Tennessee, where when you look at North Carolina in 2014, it was blue. It passed marriage before anyone else in the state. There was power on their side, but these corporations lean where, where the power's at, and that's because it's capitalism. Yeah. So that's where I'm afraid of yeah. demanding too much out of capitalism when we can you know, tell the truth about these people. I think what I'm asking for is both things out these fools if that needs to happen but also take their money away and demand yeah. that their money be taken away and that's where like hrc can do yeah. that like they need exactly. to be stepping in and like yes. demanding all of this i just think that like a lot of times on the left we might get caught up with outing more than maybe we should because it's titillating it's titillating right and i like the drama of it even as i know it's a tactic of politics I want it to be part of a larger portfolio to fight this Agreed. bullshit. Agreed, yeah. yeah. Yes. I guess the, the one last thing I would say is 
outing, I guess it is titillating. But to me, I mean, and to kind of what what Zach was was pointing to, right? Like people are trying to introduce policy in states where like parents can lose custody of their children based on some of these anti-LGBT policies. You know, it's so personal. It's so taking away people's not just bodily autonomy, but also their ability to show up for their children. And I think the thing about outing, one, maybe it can tip political scales and Mm -hmm. take away power from someone. But it's also, I think, important to underscore that it is a political strategy designed to be just as personal as mm-hmm. the public policy is against queer people. Yeah. And that's no light thing. Y'all will notice in this conversation, we have not talked about pop stars. This is very different. We're talking about yes. people with their Who hands on the lever lives. of power. I just think that sometimes there's this sense that outing will do more than it actually can. People have been outing Lindsey Graham for 20 yeah. years. That's a good point. Has it changed Lindsey Graham, that's a right? Good point. I, I just I, yeah. George Santos is still chilling in He's office. He's still there, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. I just don't want us to think that this will save us. Yeah, right. Do it. But it's not going to save us. I don't think it will save us. And like the proof is in the pudding in that you look at every very famous homophobe, they were also probably gay. Roy Cohn, for instance, was secretly queer, doing a lot of bad stuff, arrested queer people publicly. Jay Hoover was queer. All those people were queer. And that's where I'm like, yes, both of these things. Because always, it's the same with hate crimes. Those are usually people dealing with an internal war in their body. That's also with these legislators. They're dealing with their own internal hate and they're projecting it on everyone. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. expose them, pull them into therapy, pull them into something, also take away their money, do everything. But I do think we are getting to a really, really drastic moment in the culture because these bills are passing very fast. Well, And it's going to be easier and easier to out these politicians as there is just a larger public record on everyone in this era of social media. It's not going to stop. Secrecy is just not as There's no more secrecy. Girl, I would love to know that thirst traps brought down the Republican Party. That would be everything for me. (laughs) Listen, A girl can dream. Well, we'll leave it there for now. But I will say, yeah, I mean, I think... As our ongoing conversation between the three of us about this legislation, you know, as it continues to royal the country, I think thinking about activism, thinking about what we're willing to do and the trade-offs. I'm not going to say that any of these are easy decisions to make or easy solutions to achieve, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's important for us to have conversations. This isn't a podcast where we're just going to talk about the bad things that are happening to us, like it's weather. We're also going to talk about, in a nuanced thorny way, things we're considering doing, you know? But until then, political girls coming for us, we just might come for you. And I want y'all to understand (laughs) that. (laughs) All right, we'll take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because it's time for recommendations. And you are just giddy. The tar reckoning. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. Hey, HBCU fam. Get ready to turn up the energy. McDonald's and the Thurgood Marshall College Fund have $1 million in scholarships at 53 HBCUs for 66 brilliant students. This year, you could be one of them. But time is running out. Did we mention the $1 million in scholarships? Apply by March 27th at tmcf.org. Hey there, listeners. You know, as a black man working in media for over a decade, I still think about the times when I was a kid and I got to watch media as a consumer and the people that really inspired me. People like Oprah Winfrey and her talk show I watched every day after school 
or shows like RuPaul's talk show, which I snuck behind my parents' back to watch in the 90s. All of these black people on television shaped me and led me on my own path to become the person I am today and have the career I have today. So if you are looking for the next generation of influential black voices, you can find those on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. As you'll know, Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. Before we end this episode of Vibe Check, we're going to do what we do every week. We're each going to share something that's helping us keep our vibes right should we just start with Saeed? I'm so ready. I want to hear. And what I want to say for everyone, let this be a lesson of you can be in deep community, friendship, love with people, and they can disagree with you. And yes. it is a good thing. It is a productive this thing. So anyway, I welcome Saeed's reading of Tar. Your vibe this week is hating on Tar? That's your vibe? Yep. That's keeping his vibes right. I think the release, you being able to voice aloud that you uh-huh. didn't like this very acclaimed thing is like, okay. your vibe together. So okay. I guess, and I literally have a list and I'll try to get through it. Um, I want to be clear. I don't like trolling. I really don't like being like, oh, my friends really like this movie. Oh, what an exciting opportunity to shit on something that brought them joy. That That's not what it's about. I think I was genuinely thrown <laughs> while watching this movie okay. um, because I think I expected to feel complicated, but I almost felt hurt by it. And so the first thing I will say is that is I think it's really actually important that when you have that experience that you're engaging a piece of art and it could be any a movie uh, da, 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 and like people you love love it but then you're watching it and you're just like huh it's actually weirdly lonely. It's really off-putting, you know? And so my first issue, we're talking about Tar by Todd Field, to be very clear. This is full of spoilers, so, like, pause yeah, this and then come back later. Um, I think it's very pretentious. And in retrospect, I should have listened to how I felt during the film's first 10 minutes, the New Yorker That was Festival. my favorite scene! I was like, girl, it's that time to go. Had scene. I known? It was so pretentious. And so the first issue is that th- this is not a world that I actually want to be in. It's not a world that I actually am very curious. This very white, Anglo-Saxon, European world and a story spearheaded by a character who literally worships the good old boys club and believes mm-hmm. that she can girl boss, gaslight, and gatekeep her way into the good old boy canon. That's already a hard sell for me, but I think Over the course of the film, I just found myself increasingly disappointed because I wasn't getting the insight that I thought would make all of this possible. Something I would say, difficult art does not mean it's good art. 
mm-hmm. don't think it's a good movie. I think it's difficult. I think her performance is incredibly rigorous. But just as an example, and I don't think my issue is actually like with Kate Blanchett. I think a lot of it is Todd Field, the writer. And the only movie in my life where I've walked out of the movie theater was his film In the Bedroom. So I actually should have oh, wow. Wow. I did not know that. <laughs> I was like, what else has Todd Field done? He's yeah. done In the Bedroom and Little Children. And I was like, oh, that probably should have told me there. But it seems really significant to me that the rigor that we praise in her performance in the writing, for example, Kate Blanchett learning German, mm-hmm. <laughs> speaking it flawlessly. Learning and, how to conduct. Learning yeah, how to conduct. Learning yeah. how to conduct. And I would say one of my favorite scenes is when she's like bullying the little girl. I'm Petra's mm-hmm. father, right? Yeah. Um, wow, that was that was good. But it was interesting that that rigor and that attention to detail only serves white elitism. The moment the film moves to Southeast Asia, it's suddenly sloppy and lazy. Mm-hmm. I've been in Bangkok. So imagine my confusion when I'm like, wait, is this supposed to be the Philippines? Why are they showing us a Thai temple? And sure mm-hmm. enough, I, I, I did some reading and Todd Field said he had hoped to shoot in the Philippines, but because of COVID restrictions, they couldn't actually go there. So they shot in Thailand and then just decided to mix up some shots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really sloppy. I'm like, wait, so you're willing to have someone learn how to conduct and all the like the technical da-da-da-da-da or learn German, but suddenly when Asian people are involved, they're just like this generalized backdrop that's supposed to be the final deafening blow. Like, how embarrassing, how mm-hmm. awful that mm-hmm. she... And also, I was like, I've been in Bangkok. You do not need to take those buses to get around. <laughs> For yeah. example, it was just so... I was like, you know what I mean? It was It was just yeah. like the, the film just started to slowly but surely tell on itself. And then also, and I, I want to hear what y'all have to say, but the other thing is to... I feel that prestige films give themselves away when a lot of the praise is like, it's an exclusive exquisite character study because a character study is not a story. It's yeah. not a movie. And I just felt, you know, the moment she hits her head from that point in the film on, like where she thinks she sees the dog and hits her, like it just felt like the writing, the storytelling collapsed. Mm-hmm. And and then suddenly everything caught up with me. Where is the insight about queerness? I don't see it. I wasn't impressed. And where's the insight about power? I don't see it. For me, I love the film because it asks the viewer a central question. Mm. Do you still hate all the Me Too nasty men if they're cool and sexy and hot and maybe a woman? Mm. And I think it was asking me as a viewer to actually consider whether or not in some cases I might be on the side of a really bad man or a really Mm. bad woman. If the charisma is there. Yes, I think Mm. I leave that film and I know that Lydia Tarr is a villain, but I love her. And I'm obsessed with her. And it makes me, for me, the central question of this film is Uh like, are you really, really convicted about canceling all these horrible men? Mm -hmm. Or would you like them if they were cool? Right? And so that alone works for me. And then after that, it's just Kate Blanchett being great. But I was willing to allow a lot for this film because when I watched it the second time, I saw even more things. Mm. This movie is also about a haunting. Yeah. I like the, uh, the haunting, genre. the kind yeah. of the that, ghostliness. Yes. Of, and you see name, the Krista? ghost on a second mm-hmm. viewing. You yeah. see the ghost more on the second yeah. viewing. So I was okay just because of what I felt like it made me ask of myself. Mm. Yes. And whatever shortcomings in plot, 
I just left that movie thinking about my place in the world after mm. watching it, and I love that. I would agree a lot with that. And we've Sam and I've talked a lot about the ghost part. I love of a it. ghost is she, story. Is she even yeah. is she even alive? Is right. a question you can ask. But I do hear you're not so loud and clear about how they treat race and people of color when they get there. It is very rushed. Mm-hmm. It falls. And apart. really, the whole film is about race, right? I mean, yeah. well before we get to Asia, I mean that's really like the canon, the classic. Her it's about whiteness. Her really important yeah. scene in the Juilliard classroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, that really is about whiteness, I felt. Whiteness not being challenged because the right. scenes with the kids where she's being challenged, she's just like, how dare you? How dare you mm-hmm. come for this power? Especially because she, I mean, they begin with saying she's an ego. Like she is mm-hmm. the supreme in top. And I think probably for me where I found the Cate Blanchett role, so I love her. I just have to say, I just, I've, I'm yeah. unapologetic about it. There's no I, way I, I wouldn't have so, watched it if it wasn't Cate Blanchett. Yeah, only she could have done this. Yeah. But I also just know so many people I've met in my life, my career in the arts that are this person mm. that are so awful. And I felt, to Sam's point, I was seeing some of them stripped bare a bit, mm. but I know it hasn't been landing that way. As we've talked about, a lot of people in the arts aren't seeing the film how maybe we want to see it. And it's only enabling some of them in some way. So I think the film hasn't Oof. like packed the punch that it was hoping to because Todd Fields didn't write it as well as it could have and Kate Blanchett did as much as she could to like can we, can we talk up. about that and again I go back to the writing I hated the film is it a bad film no is it a good film also no to me it doesn't pack the punch because by the time we get to all the allegations and stuff stacking up because it's so limited to Lydia's off-kilter, delusional, mm-hmm. lacking self-awareness. Like, we don't actually find out what the allegations are. We don't actually no. get to see the evidence. Even when she rushes the stage, it's kind of like, it's almost dreamlike. Yeah. It's not from, so it's just, it, you're suddenly like, no, this is actually when we do kind of need to know what's going Because yeah. one question, I was like, this young woman committed suicide. You had a dicey. Why is there a deposition? I need you to connect that dot for me. It's like the vibes turn into fumes mm-hmm. <laughs> by the end. <laughs> I think it was really intentional to not, we never see the woman's face. Right. We never know all about the allegations. Just the back of her head a couple of times yeah. and stuff. For me, it's more about how villains never think they're villains. Mm. She never thought she was she a villain. She sure doesn't. And you find yourself rooting for yeah. a villain. So no. for those central questions alone, I like it because mm-hmm. it makes me ask these questions, right? And mm-hmm. like some movies try to give you answers. Some movies yeah. try to give you questions. I think this movie wanted to give us a bunch of motherfucking questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. And what I love, and I know we're going to move to our other recs, is that, um, Saeed, thank you so much for sharing this because something I believe deeply as an editor, and I've worked with so many editors in my life where they have told me I don't like something and they just stop there and I don't like it. They don't want to dive into the depths of that unliking something intelligently or like in a curiosity. And and you did that. Like you like studied and came back. I sat with, like, with all it. This. I mean, there's- and I love that because yeah. I think more people, like if you're having that type of reaction, like, check in. Why? Where's it coming from? Where's it mm-hmm. leading you? What can you learn from that? So I just, I love it. I also think that it's it's good to fight over shit. People also don't that. fight over shit enough. <laughs> like, it's it's yeah. good to have an intellectual debate about yeah. a thing. Yeah. It is. Anyway. Woo! I feel better. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I'm you glad. do. That was great. Zach, what are you recommending this week? I'm going to recommend a really beautiful, small, quiet show called Starstruck on HBO. It came out a few years ago on BBC. Uh, when I was traveling to Europe, where I eventually got to sit next to Kate Blanchett and, you know, got had to have that moment in Berlin, I tweeted out to everyone asking, what are some TV wrecks? And uh, so many people said the show Starstruck. I'd never heard Starstruck. of it. And I watched it. It's two seasons. Each episode's 20 minutes. It's about a woman who's working at a movie theater, and she goes home with an actor who's really famous and doesn't know he's famous. And it's about their affair and their love. They fall in love. And it's about their huh. relationship. So it's like Notting Hill with Hugh Grant and Julie Roberts. I love Notting Hill. Episodic and funny. Okay. And like okay. smart and wicked. Okay. So definitely watch it. It's it's great. 
Okay, sweet, sweet. My recommendation is an album I've loved for years that has recently just like come back to me and I'm loving it all over again. It's by this British Indian R&B artist named Jai Paul. So Jai Paul was like blending sounds of India with like R&B and like heavy drum and bass. It was amazing stuff. And early on when he had just released like one or two singles, he had been sampled by Beyonce and by Drake and he was going to be the next big thing. Before he was going to release his first full-length album, his brother leaked it. And it was only online for like a day or two, and then it was gone for years. Wait, his and brother leaked His brother it? leaked it. And we don't know if that was planned or not, but the brother leaked it. But for years, you could only find snippets of this album on Vimeo. But super fans were committed to keeping as much of it alive as they could. A few years ago, he finally put it on Spotify, and it's still one of the best R&B albums I've heard in the last 15 years. Hmm. This album is amazing from start to finish. There's a song on there called All Night that is one of the sexiest things you'll ever hear in your life. He's got the bangers. There's the, like It feels like dubstep and Prince and 90s R&B and Bollywood in a blender. Mm. And it comes out and it's just beautiful. I cannot recommend this album enough. If you like music and you've liked my picks on music before, uh-huh. trust me when I say you need to go listen right now to Jai Paul's album, Leak 0413. Wow. I'm slowly but surely building a playlist on your song recommendations because okay. they, they tend to complement one another. Yeah, we should get yeah. you into a DJ class. There's a lot of I would do it. I would take a DJ class. Like and also, in the meantime, I will share a playlist for Vibe Check listeners uh, with some R&B stuff that I'm feeling right now. Love. Can't All wait right. to listen. All right, listeners, tell us what you're feeling, what you're recommending. I also want to hear your thoughts on the Oscars. We didn't talk about the ceremony itself. Right. I thought it was fine, but let me know what you thought about it. And let me know how we avenge Angela, Angela Bassett. Bassett. It ain't right, cannot stand. Justice. That's for next week. That's for next week. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Vibe Check. If you love the show and want to support us, please make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast, listening platform, and tell a friend or two. Huge thank you to our producer, Chantel Holder, who has been telling us for the last half hour to wrap this shit up. Sorry, we love you, Chantel. (laughs) Thanks to our engineer, Brendan Burns. Thanks to Marcus Holm for our theme music and sound design. Special thanks to our executive producers, Nora Ritchie at Stitcher and Brandon Sharp from Agenda Management and Production. And as always, we want to hear from you and we love, love, love hearing from you. So don't forget, you can email us at vibecheck at stitcher.com and keep in touch with us on Instagram at adzakstaff, at theferocity, and at samsanders. Use the hashtag VibeCheckPod and use it on Twitter. I check it like a lot and engage okay. with things. I'm not even tagged in because I just hey. like seeing what y'all are saying. So yeah. thank you for that. <laughs> and with that, that's our show. Y'all have a great week and we'll see you next Wednesday. Bye. Justice for Lydia Tarr. <laughs> she got our justice. <laughs> Stitcher. all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? You know, I think some people maybe go for an extra workout, maybe take a nap. I love a nap. <laughs> I love reading a book. But of course, we all wish we had more time in our lives. The question is time for what? You know, if time's unlimited, how would you use it? I think therapy is actually something that can help us kind of hone our understanding of how we want to use our free time. Not just how we can get the most of it, but really how can we show up in our lives? And I would say that if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. First of all, it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule because everyone's schedule is different. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. It's very flexible. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash VibeCheck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VibeCheck. 